good morning. Before we jump into this, we have somebody here for the first time this morning, Max Brunk. Alex and Allison, could you stand up and show off baby Max? Congratulations, guys. Well, I just... Um, As we've worshiped, and as Dale just said, I sense that God's here today. And I sense that God wants to do something today in our hearts. And I'm excited about what God's gonna do in our hearts today. And so, we're starting off with a bang here, I'm sorry. But I wanna ask you today to be open I want to ask you today as we study the first four Beatitudes to be sensitive to what, what, what God wants to do in your heart. I've got to say it's been pretty awesome for me um, working through this series because honestly I've probably read the Beatitudes hundreds of times. But to study it more in depth and learn more about it has, has been an awesome thing for me. There's so many cool things wrapped up in there that if I just read through it, I, I miss it. But, but I'm excited about where we're at today. Today, last week, we talked about our heart. We talked about the fact that the Beatitudes are a snapshot of what a disciple's heart should look like and what a disciple should look like. We talked last week about how the heart, our heart is the key to being who God created us to be. The heart is the key, and we talked about tuning our hearts to God. Last week we talked about how, how there was a sandwich there in the Beatitudes of, of blessed are for theirs is the kingdom of heaven, and then blessed are for they will, for they will, for they will, and blessed are for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So we have future blessings, but we also have the opportunity to live and experience the kingdom right now. And we talked about the fact that the blessing that we're talking about and that, and that Jesus was preaching about in the Beatitudes is not a temporary happiness. It's not something that's just a good feeling. It's a deep, down, lasting blessing that gives us peace and health. And so as we talked last week about the heart being the key... This week, we're going to talk about the first four Beatitudes, and I believe that these first four Beatitudes are helping us understand what our heart needs to be. And so, what does a tuned heart look like? Last week, we talked about that, that we wanted God to tune our hearts, and we talked about as we pray and we fast, what we want to do is have God tune our hearts. So today, I want to talk about what does a tuned heart look like? How can we allow God to tune our hearts to him today. And so as we talk today, I want to ask you to do something. I want to ask you to do a checkup on your heart. As we talk about these four Beatitudes, I want to ask you to think about where you're at. I want to ask you to think about if your heart reflects what these Beatitudes say. 
And so today we're going to talk about the first four Beatitudes. Most people um, group the Beatitudes as a group of eight. They believe there's eight Beatitudes, and we talked about that last week. But, but most people group them in two groups of four. There's the first four, which are kind of the inner Beatitudes, the Beatitudes that have to do with our heart and our disposition and what God does in our heart. And then the, the last four, which is what we're going to talk about next week, is the outflowing of when God fills us. And so today, we're going to talk about these first four. We're going to talk about what it looks like to have a tuned heart. So let's jump right in. Matthew chapter 5, verse 3 says this, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now this is honestly an uncomfortable thing to us. Because our culture does not value poorness. Our culture does not value weakness. In fact, one of the things that that the critics of Christianity and people that are against God and Christianity, one of the things that people say is that Christianity and God are just a crutch for the weak. And so if, if you've ever met someone that's against religion or against Christianity, you may have heard that said, that Christianity and God are just a crutch for the weak. Let's face it, in our culture, we value strength and independence. We celebrate stories of people who have taken care of things themselves. We celebrate stories of of people who are strong and who who made it through things. And and we celebrate strength and independence. Let's be honest and admit that in the church, sometimes we want to be strong and independent. In the church, sometimes we value not weakness, but we value strength. We want to feel like everything's going well for us. We want to feel like we're, we're, we've got it together. And how many of you have ever walked into a church with your life kind of falling apart or with yourself with feeling deep down doubts about things and people ask you where you're at and you put on that face and say, I'm good, but really you're hurting and you're broken. Sometimes in the church, I think we have a tendency to think that we have to have it all together, and we have to be strong, and and we've got to be good enough for God. And we see Matthew 5, 3, and it says, Blessed are the poor in spirit. Not the rich, the poor in spirit. And so it's no surprise in a culture that values strength and accomplishment, and independence, that they would look at religion and God as weakness. And so as we ask the question, is God for the weak? Is God a crutch for the weak? I want to answer that question today by saying, yes, God is for the weak. Because in ourselves, we can't do it. We're not good enough. God is for the weak. He is a crutch for us. And we need that crutch. And the beauty is that blessed are the poor in spirit because they realize they can't do it on their own and they reach out to a God that's far greater and far stronger than they could ever be. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Even though we don't typically value weakness, today we need to understand that we're weak in ourselves. 
We need to be poor in spirit. And blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The first beatitude teach us, teaches us that we are weak. And through our weakness, we experience God's blessing and we experience God's kingdom. One commentary put it this way. It said, the beginning of repentance is the recognition of one's spiritual bankruptcy. The beginning of repentance is the recognition that I am spiritually bankrupt. In other words, God can't do what God needs to do until I realize that I can't do it on my own. As we look at the Beatitudes, I want to look at the example of Moses real quick. I I think this is a really cool story for us to to give an example of poor in spirit and this this Beatitude playing itself out. And so in Exodus chapter 3, verse 11, God is calling Moses to do something huge. God is calling Moses to lead the Israelites out of slavery in Egypt and to lead them to the promised land. And in in Exodus 3, verse 11, we see this. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? So Moses' reaction when God calls him to something great is to say, But God, who am I? I'm just Moses. I'm no good. I can't do that. Who am I? I don't have it. I don't have that ability. I can't deliver the people out of there. How would I even do that? Who am I? Clearly, Moses didn't feel like he was qualified for the job. And as we work through chapters 3 and 4 there, we see this back and forth between Moses and God where Moses is saying, I can't, I'm not good enough. And God is saying, yes, you can. You, I can do it through you. I can't. Yes, you can. And so in Exodus chapter 4, we see the Lord respond to Moses. And what's happening here is that that Moses has said, I can't do it because I can't speak well enough. And I'm not eloquent enough, and so I'll never be able to lead the people the way you want me to lead them because I'm not good enough. And the Lord's response in Exodus 4, 11 through 12 is awesome. The Lord said to him, Who gave human beings their mouths? Who makes them deaf or mute? Who gives them sight or makes them blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now go, and I will help you speak and teach you what to say. And so we see in this story that Moses is poor in spirit, and he can't do it on his own, but we see God's response that, I can. I'm good enough. Blessed are the poor in spirit, because they get God's help. Because God is that crutch, and with that crutch, we can accomplish far more than we ever can on our own. Moses is right. He's not qualified. And the truth today is that we're not qualified. We can't save ourselves on our own. We can't be who God created us to be without God. And so God's response is, I've got this. In order for Moses to accomplish what God called him to, he had to allow God to do the work. He had to come to a place where he realized he was poor in spirit and allow God to take over and do the work. Sometimes I think we treat God like a driver's ed or like, like a driver's ed instructor. Like we say, God, we want you to take control. And we jump in the car, but we've got that little wheel over there that we can like take over, right? And sometimes I think we we say, God, I want you to take control, but every once in a while we think, I think I'm going to take it for a little bit. 
I think I've got this. I think, you know, you're great and all, but I can do this. I'm strong enough. And we miss out on God's greatness. Why would we want to control our lives when we could step back and say, God, creator of everything, all-powerful God who led the Israelites out of Egypt and did amazing things and has always done amazing things. Why would we want control when we can give it up and allow the creator God to control us? The first step in tuning our heart to God is realizing our spiritual inadequacy. Let me ask you today, have you come to a place where you are totally reliant on God's power? Have you come to a place in your walk with Christ that you've said, God, I don't have it, and you've allowed God to take over and lead you? The second beatitude goes right along with this one. In Matthew chapter 5, verse 4, it says this, Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are those who mourn. The natural result of realizing that we don't have it and we're not good enough and we can't be who we need to be should be mourning. You know, when, when I've read the Beatitudes before, I think it's easy to just take them as kind of eight separate, like, cool things. But the truth of the matter is, these build on each other and they go together. And, and when we realize that we're poor in spirit, it should cause us to mourn. It should cause us to, to want change. And so the result of acknowledging our spiritual inadequacy is that we should mourn. If we really want to be a disciple of Christ, then we have to realize we don't have it, and it has to bother us so much that we ask God to change it. When we mourn and we call out for help, that's when we get it. That's when God comes in and blesses us, and so blessed are those who mourn, for God will comfort them. We have to realize we don't have it. It has to break our heart. Have you ever had a problem, but it wasn't bad enough that you really mourned over it? Have you ever had a problem that, like, you wanted to change, but it wasn't bad enough for you to change? I remember, let me be honest with you about something. I wasn't the best um, college student. I didn't, I didn't do the best in college. I'm sorry. Sorry, Mom, wherever you are. <laughs> sorry, Mom, at home. Um, I, I'm sorry. I'm, I'm not the best college student. And I remember going through college, um, I, I usually did what I needed to do to get by. I, I liked to sleep, and I liked to hang out with friends. I didn't necessarily love to pour myself into my studies, and everything was really fine for the majority of college, but my senior year, and by the way, I'm sorry if I've told this story before. I feel like I have, but my senior year, I had systematic theology. All right, how many of you feel like you got a good grip on systematic theology? Good for you, Lord. <laughs> All right. Um, well, I didn't in college. Okay, and so I had systematic theology, and one of my problems was that at Treveca, the religion department always had classes at 7.30 a.m. on Monday, Wednesday, Friday. And 7.30 a.m. is not a time that I like to see. And so I had this problem that sometimes I, I, I didn't pay too much attention, and sometimes I would miss class. And, and so this one morning, I had actually missed the whole week before of class, not for bad reasons, but because I was actually, it was excused, I was at a conference but the next Monday, I walked into class. I'm walking down the, the street there, and one of my friends walks out of class that's in the class with me, and I said, oh, man, did he cancel class? This is awesome. And he said, no, dude, we have our midterm today. And I was like, oh, no. <laughs> oh, no. 
And so I walked into the class immediately because I knew I was toast because, as I said, I have no grip on, had no grip on systematic theology at the time. And it's not like systematic theology is like multiple choice where I can hopefully get a few right just by guessing. And so I walked straight in that class and I walked up to the teacher and I said, by the way, he's the president of Mount Vernon now, Dr. Spaulding. And I walked up to Dr. Spaulding and I said, I'm an idiot. I blew it. I'm so sorry. Is there any way that I can take this test later? Because I totally forgot about it, and I missed all last week. And he said, no, sit down and take the test. (laughs) And so I sat down, and I took the test. And it was like 20 short answer questions about systematic theology, and then this big essay. And, And I'm good enough at making stuff up that I got nine points on my essay, and that's it. So I made a nine on my systematic theology midterm that was a fifth of my grade in that class. And so understand that I'm in my last semester of college. I'm almost done, and all of a sudden, I've absolutely blown it, and I'm done for. I felt mourning that day. I went back to my room, and I, this will surprise you, I laid down in my bed and I cried because I thought, all of this work and I'm going to have to just come back again and do it again next year. I blew it. And I finally, after years of, of having problems with doing my work and years of being an average student that wasn't doing everything that I could, I finally came to a point that it broke me and it got me and I knew things needed to change. When, when we realize that we don't have it, it should break our hearts. It should get us to that point that we ask for change. And so, until we acknowledge our inadequacy and come to God in mourning, God can't take control and give us the blessing that God promises us. And so we realize we don't have it on our own. And we have to mourn over that. And that leads us to Matthew 5, 5, which says, Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Well, what does meek mean? If you look up meek, you'll get a definition similar to this. It means quiet, it means gentle, it means submissive. So not somebody that's in your face, but somebody that's quiet and gentle and submissive. And some of you here today may be meek people. Maybe that's just the way you were born. You're just meek. That's not what this is talking about. This isn't just talking about the attributes of somebody that's meek. This is talking about meekness when it comes to our walk with God. This is talking about a meekness that's rooted in our relationship with God. And so here's the thing. And I think this is the, the gist of blessed are the meek right here. Meekness comes as we realize that it's not about us. Listen to that again. Meekness comes as we realize that it's not about us. So what does meekness mean? Well, um, your, your scripture guide that we've been following along with says that meekness means doing the right things quietly for the right reason. Meekness sometimes means not being defensive or getting angry over what people are doing to you, but stepping back and trusting, which leads us to the next thing, that trusting God to take care of things. And then meekness means waiting on God's action. And so if we go back to Moses and we think about God calling Moses to do this incredible thing, and Moses begins the process 
But man, Moses needed to be meek to accomplish what he needed to accomplish. He couldn't be about himself. He couldn't be about his agenda or what needed to happen. He had to trust and he had to wait on God and he had to just be open to wherever God led him. I was thinking about this. What, what do you think when, when Pharaoh first said, no, you're not going, you're not taking the people? What if Moses had been like, well, I gotta do it, let's sneak out. Let's all just, you know, when they're not looking, let's just sneak out tonight. That would have been Moses taking his agenda or his plan, trying to do it on his own, taking control, and things probably wouldn't have worked out the way they worked out. Or What about when they're running away from the Egyptians and they come to the Red Sea and they're stuck? What if Moses had said, start swimming, guys. Come on, we got to get this done. Moses had to be meek. Moses had to realize that in his own power, he wasn't going to get it done. He had to come to a place that it bothered him so much that he said, God, take it all. And then he had to be meek and trust and wait and believe that God was going to get it done. Meekness is when we understand that it's not about us. Meekness is when we do the right things for the right reasons. Here's the thing, I think sometimes as Christians, we feel like we have to defend ourselves. We feel like we need to make sure that we look good. We need to make sure that nobody's talking bad about us. So if someone says something about us, we got to get back at them. Or we got to, no, that's not true, I'm good. Meekness is understanding that it's not about me and allowing God to work. Moses had meekness. Maybe some of you here today are struggling with meekness because you haven't gotten to the point that you've realized it's all God's. One of the things I read is that confidence in God's power shifts the focus away from us. And so when things are going on around us and when we realize we're not good enough and we ask God to take it all, we have to realize that it's God's power that's going to make the changes that need to happen anyway. So when we look at the world around us and we look at the things that are happening in our lives, we have to trust that God's going to take care of it and not step in on our own and try to control things and make it about us. Another thing that I thought was awesome was the idea that when everything is God's, we're free to be meek. When it's all God's, guess what? This country, this world, it's all God's. God created it. Guess what? The problems that you're dealing with, the things that are, you're struggling with, it's all God's. Ministry is all God's. Your personal walk with God, it's all God's. Just like he said to Moses in Exodus chapter 4, who gives you this power? Who gives you, who creates you? Who gives you the opportunity to live? It's God. And so when we understand that God owns it all, we have the freedom to be meek and to say, God, do your work through me. It frees us from having to worry about ourselves. It frees us from having to control situations. We have the opportunity to step back and say, God, take it. So Matthew chapter 5, verse 6, then says this. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, 
for they will be filled. And so I'm going to stop right there and just say that word righteousness is awesome. This is one of the things that's been blowing my mind as I've studied the Beatitudes. As we talked about these sandwiches, we talked about um, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven, for they will, for they will, for they will, for they will, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Well, now we have this word righteousness and we see another sandwich. And I think this is huge for us to understand today. Because up until this point, what have we been talking about? We've been talking about our emptiness. We've been talking about the fact that we can't do it on our own. And so this says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. In other words, people that don't have it on their own. And if we look down to the last four Beatitudes, if we look down to the end of those, the last one is, blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness. So do you hear that? Blessed, blessed are those who hunger and seek for it turns to blessed are those who are persecuted because of it. And so we understand that this fourth beatitude encapsulates perfectly what we're talking about today. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for God's righteousness because they don't have it on their own. For they will be filled. And then you move into the next four, and you realize that when God fills you, the outflow of that righteousness starts working. And we come to a place where it says, blessed are you when you're persecuted for righteousness, because you have it, because God's filled you. And so we see that sandwich, and today we're talking about our need for righteousness. So what is righteousness? Well, if the first four are about us not having it, and if we come to a place where it says we need to hunger and thirst for it, and then the last four, we have it, I believe that that's answered in the last four Beatitudes. That righteousness that we should hunger and thirst for is being merciful, is being pure in heart, is being peacemakers. We should hunger and thirst for God to make us that way. And so this is huge. God doesn't, Jesus doesn't say you should hunger and thirst for ministerial success. God doesn't, or Jesus doesn't say you should hunger and thirst for these high moments of God's, you know, providential stuff. You shouldn't hunger and thirst for those mountaintop experiences with God's. What Jesus says is that those who hunger and thirst should hunger and thirst for God's righteousness. Let me boil this down to one phrase. What we should hunger and thirst for more than anything else is to be more like Christ. To have God's righteousness inside us. And so when we realize we don't have it, and when it breaks us to the point that we say, God, I'm mourning, I need it. And when we become meek because we realize it's all God's anyway, we will hunger and we will thirst and we will say, God, give me your righteousness so I can be more like you. It's not about what we can get from God. It's about being more like Christ. We should be more like Christ. And so I want to ask you, where's your heart today? Where's your heart today? Does it reflect the heart of the first four Beatitudes? That's broken and inadequate and mourning and seeking God's help? and hungering and thirsting for more of God's righteousness? 
When we tune our hearts to God by realizing we don't have it, when we tune our hearts to God by mourning over the fact that we don't have it, when we meekly understand that it's not about us, but it's about God's power, and when we hunger and thirst with everything we are for God's righteousness, for God to change our heart and tune our heart, we will be filled. Today, as we sit here, and as we've worshiped together, I hope God's been speaking to your heart. And I want to ask you these four questions. Have you realized that on your own you can't do it? Have you realized that on your own you cannot save yourself? You cannot be who God created you to be without the help of an almighty God? Have you realized that you need that crutch? Today, have you, has it gotten to the point that you are mourning because you want it so badly and you need it so badly that you want God to take it? Are you mourning today? Have you gotten to the point that you've realized it's not about you and what you can do, but it's about God and God's power? And have you come to the place that your heart is meek and you trust God to work? And today, are you at a place where all you want, all you hunger and thirst for, is God's righteousness, to be more like Christ. The band's going to come up and, and we're going to sing one more song. But I just want to ask you today, as I, as I said earlier, we need to take inventory of our heart. And, and we're now in the third week of our prayer and fasting, and I hope that you've had a great time praying at home. I hope you've had a great time fasting from things and seeing God work in your life. But today, the most important question you can ask yourself is, does my heart reflect these first four Beatitudes? Is my heart totally open to God's leading? Is my heart, do I, have I come to God and said, I don't have it? Am I asking God to take everything? Have I realized it's not about me? And are you hungering and thirsting today for God's righteousness? I just want to invite you today that, that if any of that strikes a nerve with you, if any of that is something that you feel like your heart isn't tuned to where God wants you to be, feel free to come and pray while we sing. I want all of us to take this opportunity to spend some time in prayer. I want all of us to pray, God, tune my heart to be the snapshot of your disciple. Tune my heart to be filled with your righteousness. And so as we sing, pray.